This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hello, good morning, and welcome to Tabletop Genesis. This is Mike Lord, your host. Hello, everyone. This is Ellie. This is Simon. This is Stacy. And this is Tom. And today we have a very special episode for you where... They're all special episodes. We are, yes. A very special episode of Tabletop <laughs> Genesis. We are here today to give you an interview with Anthony Phillips, original guitarist of Genesis and purveyor of a wonderful solo career that you should really find his music if you have not done so already. Uh, Ellie and I were recently in London on vacation. We were able to set up something ahead of time where Ant very graciously invited us into his home uh, and we were able to interview him. We got a little personal tour of his studio. We chatted with him off Offline also, he made us tea. He did all the wonderful things that English hosts do. Uh, And we were able to get this interview with him. And it lasts about, you know, depending upon how it's edited, about 35, 40 minutes. And he's a really nice guy, a really good person to talk to, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of his own catalog, uh, which is extensive. Uh, Just in the private parts and pieces series there are 10, ten albums yes. <laughs> so he's got a lot of lot of private parts yes he does <laughs> so and pieces of them somewhere uh and has a good sense of humor these microphones that we talk into have the word blue on them and this really caught his attention and he mentions it <laughs> once or twice uh about during the interview about you're my kind of blue and so that's what he's referencing, <laughs> just so you know, right. he's not he being strange in a certain way. <laughs> oh, no, the English were a salacious bunch. Yes, exactly. So, so with that, uh, we will go over to the interview and we'll be back at the end of it to talk about it. Let me hear I'm an I'm an I'm with Charlie Tolley. I'm catching very, very, and I'm feeling so low. This is much too good for the people, he said. I said, don't people Okay. I think we should start by yes. saying that this, yes. this yes. microphone is your kind of blue. Yes. <laughs> uh, how many puns do we work <laughs> into this interview? We'll see how it goes. So, and thank you very much for allowing us into your home Absolutely to do pleasure. this. Is this where your recording studio is set up? Are you set up here? Yes, or? studio, um, technical bit, computers and stuff is upstairs. Mm-hmm. Live room is out the back. Oh, okay. okay. Very nice. Towards so, the country, as they say. Yes. So it allows you yeah, it allows you to be very easily creative in your home situation. Yeah, I've just had the back room uh, extended so that there's a big piano, harpsichord, mm-hmm. and lots and lots of guitars. Whereas before, it was quite small. The sound was very dead. Okay. And actually, um, it wasn't particularly inspiring working in there. But it's fantastic now. Right. So we, we laughingly call the main one Studio One, 
Then there's a sort of tape store room with the guts mm-hmm. of the computer studio two, mm-hmm. and then the big room at the back we call studio three. Okay. <laughs> so what are you working on now? What's uh, what's on your agenda creatively and musically? I am not working. Well, I've been toying with a new private parts and pieces album, mm-hmm. um, acoustic guitar uh, music, but. Um, there's so much other stuff which I have to sort of get out of the way first. With Slow Dance is the latest mm-hmm. re-release which we've been um, dealing with. So there's a lot of work gone into that. Um, then Invisible Men is coming out. So it's been oh, tracking yeah. down old tapes, remixing things, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Um, because I'm very active on the TV music front, doing library right. music as well. So I'm constantly doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been doing quite a lot of songwriting as well. Um, I had one song which um, people were quite keen on in the sort of what they call the crossover area, sort of mm-hmm. slightly operatic. Okay. And so we've been, sort of, myself and Franklin Andrewski, we've been pushing this around and um, it sort of got close to Andrea Bocelli doing it, but didn't. Okay. Uh, it's one of these ones where you, this is, it's a strange business is the business of covers. You hear that Sansa says they really love it and think, I'm sure Sansa will like it. Then you suddenly hear, He's not doing anything. Well, what's going on behind the scenes here? <laughs> right. So, yes, I'm pretty active across the board, actually. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, with um, you mentioned your library music. How did you how do you get into that career? Because that's something that I think a lot of the listeners may not know that there's this other world of music where yeah. you write for television. It's not necessarily, from what I understand, it's not necessarily credited in not. the TV. No, it's not. No, I mean, I wandered into that really by accident. Um, I mean, obviously, you can write music directly to a program, which I've done mm-hmm. a lot of. But the principle of library music is really like library. It's like Getty Images. Mm-hmm. You know, people want a great photo image, so they, mm-hmm. they haven't got time to go off to the Zambezi and shoot it. So, And the same thing happens with music. You know, if you've got mm-hmm. quick turnaround programs, particularly documentaries and stuff, they haven't got time for a, a guy to come in, look at the footage, go away, do demos, argue about it. Right. And, of course, with computers being uh, being so sophisticated, editors can zoom in on different pieces of music mm-hmm. and create a kind of collage of stuff of their own, one going into the other without the composer. So you cede your rights. You, know, you do, Once you do it, you can't tap, you know, you sell it to the yeah, that's right. That's yeah. what, what happens. Okay. So it's a strange world because you don't know what's being used, um, and you never know how much money is coming in. But I've been very lucky because the comp- I, I had a succession. Uh, excuse me. Uh, almost in in uh, direct sort of contrast to perhaps arguably bad luck with record company mm-hmm. takeovers and various things like that. Um, passport going bust, right. stuff like that. The library music has been a, like a fairy tale, really, because the small company got taken over by a bigger one, which then took over somebody. And blah, blah, blah. We ended up by being part of Universal, okay. the biggest publisher of the lot. Right. So um, I'm not fooled that what I'm doing is necessarily a lot better than some of the people on other companies. But, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's hard work, but it is right time, right. Right, right place, right time as well. Do you feel creative satisfaction from working in that world? Mm. I love it. Well, because what I do is I, I mean, I've done a couple of orchestral things, but what I tend to do is I, I, I work ahead of commissions. Okay. So I actually, uh, I do a period of writing where I just go in, mm-hmm. literally call up a whole lot of new synth sounds, mm-hmm. virtual instruments and stuff, and just improvise. So I'm in a sort of sonic world of my own. So I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not obeying any dictum or any orders or anything. Right. And the majority of it is obviously going to be pretty, pretty average, if not rubbish. But just occasionally, 
you you clue into a whole lot of stuff that does work mm -hmm. and the the it's quite time ineffective in the sense that you have to go through hours and hours and hours of stuff afterwards because i just recall the whole lot right um but actually it's kind of nice because what you're what you're doing is you're you're and i think this is very valid often the first thing that comes into your head when you sit at the guitar or play the piano is the best because it's fresh right and so rather than rather than going over an idea and working it I just call up the sounds and do the first thing that comes into my head with each group of sounds, then move on. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always this sort of this spontaneous. So when a project comes up, I go through my vast library of all these things right. that say, I think this might fit this one, this might mm -hmm. fit that one. So I never have that kind of thing of the blank piece of paper where somebody asks you to do something. You have a bank of material exactly. ready to go yeah, exactly. in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah. And then I, for instance, I, 2015, I, I worked the whole year off and on doing stuff and ended up with about, it sounds ludicrous to say a short list of 150, but it was down from about seven, 800, okay. which I worked with um, my friend James Collins. And James then took these pieces away. And because a lot of them were quite, I mean, a lot of them will be strong in mood, but there will be flaws right. because I'm improvising. Right. That's the thing. Um, and so. This worked well because what he does is he takes them away, edits, chops, and all the rest of it, and then adds a few things. And so okay. you end up with a, a thing that's spontaneous but also quite um, quite polished at the right. end. And in fact, what we, we've been doing recently, which I haven't done before, in order to sort of help to sell some of this stuff. I mean, because I've done so many library pieces that they're not actually I find now that they tend and it doesn't a lot of the stuff I've done doesn't date that much so sure. they feel they've got I think to be fair to them it quite you know enough of enough of me right so I have they to have keep, a library of your I pieces have, exactly, right, I have to keep so. reinventing myself to get sure. them interested so what we did recently I've never done this before we took random we put the stuff into two categories, which was the natural world mm -hmm. uh, and then the human world, human story. Okay. And we started lining up the pieces, just going to YouTube, with mm -hmm. anything from a beautiful, like a jellyfish in the water with all the all the shapes and stuff, through to stills of the Civil War. Okay. You know, I mean, just right across the board mm -hmm. for the human stories and just lining up the pieces. And actually, it's really interesting when you do that. Sure. Because you get these happy accidents. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think, I'm hoping it's going to be a great way to sell it to people and say, well, look, this really works for this. Right. You can see that. Rather, because otherwise, you know, they're supposed to have a good imagination, these people, but not always. People, right. more and more off, often, I think, you have to spoon feed up to a point. Right. You or need to listen, show them how it works yeah, so listen, they yeah. know how it is. Or they listen to the piece of the phone goes or something. And they <laughs> think, oh, well, that's no good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it distracts them enough in that moment that it doesn't work for them anymore. So. I remember a guy in the songwriting yeah. days, actually, when I was doing a lot of songwriting, I saw this guy, I mean, I won't mention his name, but he actually did do that. I mean, we used to go and have at least once where the demo, but the demo, we'd be playing the demo, he'd be on the phone for the entire, then at the end he'd start giving us notes. And I'd think, I can't believe you're doing this. Right. And you really be paying can attention. You really? when you're I mean, in the how can you actually be really concentrating on this? Right. Uh, unsurprisingly, he was called Cloth Ears. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> right. Well, you talked about uh, the reissues that are happening, mm. uh, Slow Dance coming out very soon, and the other ones that have come out already. How has that been for you kind of, I don't want to say rediscovering necessarily, but kind of revisiting this music that you had done in the past, finding new old things that you had forgotten about and doing the 5.1 mixes? How has that process been for you? 
I think initially, um, I mean, it obviously varies from album to album. Initially, you think, um, oh, that's quite nice. Trouble is, after two or three plays, you start remembering what it was that you were dissatisfied with at the time. Sure. And quite quickly, it falls, um, <laughs> particularly the song albums, I think. Um, but some, I felt better about, I mean, I wasn't there during the 5.1 mix. Okay. No, I left it to the guys. So okay. actually Which is that, Simon Hayworth Simon and, and Andy. Okay. Andy. Um, and actually, um, that was lovely because I was able to go in and mm-hmm. just and play me. This happened with the Geese and the Ghosts as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just extraordinary. You know, right. suddenly you've got this. Because I, mean, I, I was like a lot of people. It wasn't that I thought... 5.1 was overrated. I just didn't really have the patience, I suppose, hmm. to think about sitting in one position right. because everyone's listening to music on the move, aren't right. they, a lot of the time? Um, but um, they played me a, an orchestral piece by Jerry Goldsmith, and it was like sitting in the middle of the orchestra. Right. I remember this horn fanfare. It sounded like about 100 horns. When it, down, when it went down to stereo, it sounded positively impoverished. And then right. James Taylor... CD again. You're sitting in the middle of the band, and so right. I was completely hooked from yeah. then on. I enjoy it because it does feel like it it broadens out the scope, mm-hmm. and I don't need a lot of tricks going no, on. No, no, it no, doesn't no, need to no, be spinning no, around, no, no, but no, no. it just gives that broader sound stage. Absolutely. When so. you feel as though you're in the middle of it, don't you? So, um, yes, you can be over tricksy, and certainly with song albums, I think that's quite risky because. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to keep all the central information. If it starts moving around too much, it doesn't work. I think with the instrumental albums, there's more scope for that. I think on 1984, they did a great job. Mm. Because it's a bit of a weird album, there's a lot of weird sounds. There's a lot of scope for being a little bit more... um, I mean, one one interview described it, which they loved, as as one of the the medium's crowning achievements, which is great for Simon and Andy. Sure. Um, Slow Dance, we had a lot of difficulty with, actually. A lot of difficulty. I mean, it's not always possible to get these mixes back. Sometimes things are so complicated. You know, they just hang on. It's like a pack of cards. You know, you take one out, the whole Mm -hmm. lot collapses. Geese goes was really difficult. Right. Um, There's an automatic program I don't know if you know this called Penton. Okay. Which they I know, use. I can't heard the name. Yeah, yes. I thought you might have. Yeah. If you can't, if if you get to a section which is just defeating you, mm-hmm. um, rather than take forever and get bogged down in it, mm-hmm. in, in extremists, they will use Penton, which which is, um, it analyzes the mix, okay. the original mix, and starts it's spreading things like oh, that. Really? Okay. It doesn't do crazy things like throwing the drums sure, to the back. Right. It also it must analyze the sort of you know the, the lighter stuff. Okay. And so you get you get the um, the sort of uh, uh, ambience and sort of width from mm-hmm. that. The only thing we found with slow dance was that what some of the sustained sounds um, and the airy stuff was was loudish in the mix anyway. So okay. what then happened was it threw that stuff out. And it was getting a little bit mushy, and the the right. the, the um, clarity mm-hmm. uh, was going a little bit. So it was quite a lot of quite mm-hmm. a lot of jiggery pokery. Yeah, <laughs> and that's I think you know it, it must be nice for you to be able to come into this at the end and just listen to it, and yeah. you know maybe offer some fine tuning points. Uh, but it it saves you a lot of the headache of doing it yourself, I would imagine, to have yeah, I think a would, good team working with you. I would go bonkers, actually, so I had to, because actually, the more I listen to it, the more I think, oh, I could have done that better, I could have done that better. Right. You know, yeah, I think, 
I'm, I'm sure most musicians are like right. So is the plan basically with Esoterra to do all of your albums in 5.1 or is no, it? No, okay. no, far from it. No, I mean, they were, they were really only prepared straight off to do the geese and the ghost. Okay. Um, then on it's been, um, it's been, I'm mean, to be honest, I mean, it's been, you know, we sort of, we, I've part, part financed it with okay. my decision to do it because, because it is expensive to do it. Right. Well, you can get people to do it cheaper, but it's, you know, it's going to, it's, it's, it's not going to, you get what you pay for. Well, right? exactly. Yeah. Peanuts and monkeys, really. <laughs> so, um, Simon and Andy know the music. They're right. really, really good. So, so I put, yes, I mean, I've, I've, I've put a fair bit of dosh into okay. those because I felt, well, I just thought, well, if it, you know, we're going to go through all this again. Let's give people something different right. as well to make it worthwhile buying it right. again. Because I mean, it's, it, it, I always feel a bit bad about people rebuying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like you know, asking someone to go out and buy the same painting twice with a few <laughs> different colours in the right. corner. Yeah. Doesn't seem you should trade the old one in for right. the new one. So yeah. but if you give them something completely different, and the great thing on slow dance, which I didn't mention, was that we we found it managed to find the original quarter inch tapes. Okay, which and actually. Twenty percent better. Okay, quite a lot more clarity and um, um, what's the word? I can't think. I was trying to think about it just now. I'll come back to you on this. <laughs> one, but I can't. Think <laughs> I sometimes say that those they take a blank that was on the set. Definition, definition that works. Yeah, okay. definition. Yeah, that's not a difficult word. Thought of that. Sometimes it just blanks out. <laughs> You're my kind of right. blue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, as a resident of the U.S., where it was difficult to find your music for many years it's it's wonderful to have a company like es- esoteric that makes it much easier to get oh, the music great. in a I way really so uh because I, I think the first album i got of yours was one of the private parks and pieces oh, really? albums uh, i think it was dragonfly dream i think that was my first exposure to your music directly what album to come in on but it's one of it actually is one of my favorite though of yours maybe because it was first yeah, yeah but yeah. it's it's what people you know it's sometimes what people latch on to yeah. well it's good to hear that about esoteric i must say actually yeah. uh, very good yeah they after years of being slightly in the wilderness and people always saying can't get hold of your record right and, and i think that it's 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 a way to re-expose people who might know you from the connection to Genesis, yeah. but then kind of find this other world of music that mm-hmm. you're a part of that I've said it has the same DNA, yeah, yeah, but it's still very different than yeah, things. Yeah, sure.
one of the albums I was listening to recently, and I'm uh, ahead of the field. I might be getting the, the title wrong of yours. It was one of, I think, from the mid-'80s, and it might have been a soundtrack to something. But the funny thing was I said, you know, this is a mid-'80s sound that isn't miles apart from what Genesis was doing at the time. And, again, it's that similar DNA that it's like it's not the same, and it's actually nice that it's different, but it's still – like for me, music comes down to feel a lot of times. Like I don't analyze it too much, but it – it gives me the same type of feeling that other parts of this family do. Well, so. they wanted that was interesting because that was very much a library album it was a, mm-hmm. for, a, for a one-off company that had a, a ha- very much a house style. I've mm-hmm. been able to do stuff which has been much more kind of um, atmospheric, dreamy, romantical sorts of things. Right. But they wanted everything to be was in the days where there was a lot of library music was used in corporate videos. Okay, and you wanted they wanted to have things that had drums mostly upbeat. Okay, and so it was very much. I, I was writing stuff that was quite up tempo, right. quite rocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite bright. bit of an odd one that I wouldn't have expected you to mention that one. <laughs> it was one when when the last couple of weeks as I've been going through a lot of your music just refamiliarizing myself mm. with things is that kind of jumped out at me of oh, the feel of that mm. album. I was like, oh this is interesting. I, I didn't you know you come back to music after not listening to it for a while and you, and you kind of think differently about it sometimes. I mean I think it's probably the only one of of, of so called of my albums which has got which I mean, I'm actually only sort of doing overdubs on it. It okay. was actually a band. Oh, really? Okay. It. Yeah, I scored it. Okay. It was the first time I'd ever had to score for. You know, I'd learned how to do the the um, the, the conventional classical mm-hmm. thing, but I'd never had to write for, write drum parts mm-hmm. down. Right. So it really didn't. It was quite tricky right. actually. That. But no, the guy called Ray Russell played the guitar. Okay. I mean, I overdubbed some guitars sure. afterwards and overdubbed quite a lot of stuff. But it was it was done as a band setup. Okay. And the bassist was very good. He played with Elton John. But we oh, are okay. talking thirty years ago. So right. I was a bit I was a bit embarrassed by the title. Right. To be honest, it was <laughs> right. wasn't my idea. Right. If you had to recommend people a starting point for your music with to somebody who hasn't heard your music before, is there anything any either one specific album that would jump out to say start here? I think it would probably have to be the Geese of the Ghost because it's got that sort of Genesis connection. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and there are sort of links, aren't there? There's an easy way in. You've got sure. Phil Sing, a couple of right. tracks, which incidentally, of course, he did before he became lead singer of Genesis. <laughs> By the time it came out, he was, and I got flat for saying, oh, he's cashing in on the lead singer, and he wasn't. Right. And he wasn't going to be either. Right. There was no thought. He was a drummer. He didn't do both. Right. And it's well known that in desperation, they said, well, we can't find anybody. They were auditioning people all that summer. Right. So I think, I'd, yeah, I think I would go for that one. If, if, uh, obviously, the more sort of rock, rock oriented people are probably put in the director's sides. of a more sort of slightly classical filmic band I would probably put towards Slow Dance. Okay. But that's not including the private pieces, which are sort mm-hmm. of curate's egg of albums, aren't right. they, really? Some people love some. I mean, there was a review of when Virgin released the CDs, they did them in groups, and I remember right. there, was a, there was a review in Q magazine of PP1, mm-hmm. Geese and the Ghost, and Sides, I think. Okay. And it gave, out of five, it gave, wasn't that key on size, it gave sides two stars, gave Geese the Ghost three, and it gave Private Parts of Pieces one four stars ahead of that, saying, you know, this has got tunes that Mike Oldfield will kill for.
so yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, there right. are people that there is all there odd some of the PPs really do have a, a strong right. following. So they do. It's it's an old, it's an I can't really predict it or say why, but <laughs> it's always a mystery what people like. True. I think that's absolutely. Uh, did you realize? And we actually just realized this that uh, the cover of sides. Is in the spinal is, is in spinal tap. It is. Yes. Somebody <laughs> told me this. Yeah. Somebody told me this. Yeah. It's when they're in the record shop yes, in New York. Yeah. We have. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but somebody told me. Right there. So, hey. <laughs> our friend Tom, who's oh, on the really? podcast, he must <laughs> yeah. he loves Spinal Tap, and he must have been watching it the other day. And he actually texted me and said, "You know, Sides is in Spinal Tap," <laughs> and I said, "I never, I've seen Spinal Tap hundreds of times, and I never realized it myself." I'll so. tell you a funny story about Spinal Tap. A friend of mine, um, Lady Celia, she was working for um, ATV, who was, who was Lou Grade's company, who was okay. behind it, and we we got this. A group of us got got um, through her got invites to the to a premiere of this odd film right in one of those very this funny cinema in Notting Hill is one of those really old fashioned ones very trendy mm-hmm. it was completely disorganised because people were turning up there with no seats to them including a very very polite Michael Palin oh. who just stood there and watched, watched it standing in the aisle <laughs> right and I had a chance to meet him afterwards and he was such a hero that they turned right. and said this is and I, I did. I was hiding behind a tree, but nobody quite knew. We didn't quite know what we were watching. Right. It was really weird. I did certainly didn't spot. Yeah, didn't spot. Um, yeah, it, you, you <laughs> blink and you funny. miss it, but yeah, it was yeah, like, oh, that's one of the albums yeah, there. Yeah. So a little bit of rock and roll history yeah, right there stuff, for you. Yeah. So, is there? You were talking about your writing before, where you said that you're doing some more song-based writing now. Is that? What's inspired that? Because you've been doing this library music and doing more instrumental music recently. So what's kind of... I think songs are always bubbling under, to be honest. I'm mm-hmm. always a bit frustrated about not having done more with songs. And we've got... As far as getting covers are concerned, it, it was very frustrating. Um, uh, Golden Bullies, which was on Invisible Members, is going to be done okay. by Sheena Easton, who was oh, big okay. at the time, but, but Chris Neal lost her. Then we had another thing that was covered over here by a group who had uh, about to be next thing had a coach crash. Um, then Roger Dorchy was going to do one and can the album. We just uh, kept having this. And right. so I then, I a bad and luck, then, yeah. I, then I just, that was in the 80s, I just switched into instrument. But, but I've always written songs, but right. never very good at finishing them, unless it's a sort of very personal one, like Unheard Cry or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the more slightly more mainstream commercial ones, I'm, I'm not really very good at finishing them. So um, this sort of bit of lull in certain areas, I thought, well, hang on, let's have a, have a crack at this. And also this crossover song I mentioned mm-hmm. encouraged me to sort of go, try and go slightly in that area. But I hit a bit of a wall because I've got all these ideas, but I'm look. I need to collaborate with somebody sure. on the lyrical front, so I'm sort of casting around that for, for the okay. moment. But uh, yeah, and I've always loved writing songs. But uh, so when did you? Uh, you you are a lyric writer though. So w- when did you, as as a youth, when did you discover that you had this penchant for both so- writing songs and writing lyrics? Well, I think my lyrics were pretty terrible, to be honest. Earlier, I mean, <laughs> the first, the first, the first thing we did um, with the school group and on mm-hmm. the song called Pennsylvania Flick House and mm-hmm. that got released on the on the uh, free freebie by the German fan club I think right. I got persuaded to, to find the 
release that, uh, and I, it was against my better judgment release. The lyrics are absolutely appalling. But you were young, you know, it's fine. Sob, so. And so the, my lyrics are really pretty terrible, actually, early on. <laughs> now, now having, what makes it terrible for you? Well, having, just... having falling in love and having a heartbreak is quite good for creativity. Yeah. Look at Mr. Collins. Um, so actually, <laughs> I probably wrote some, although they may have gone a bit over the top and perhaps been a little bit, quote, in a word of self-indulgent, because I know it's just sort of it's just sort of subjective term, but... Um, I think that certainly did did help um, because you're. It's something. I mean, if you really feel something deeply, I think you're you're it's, you're, you're on a better uh, you're on a, a a better wicket than if you're just trying to create something out of you and right. looking for an idea and you haven't really got anything to say. Right. Um, I've never been very good uh, at sort of political ones. Uh, I mean, Peter's excellent mm. with all that kind of stuff. And in do those, you want to try to write more political lyrics, not or really, no, not your wheelhouse? Okay. Well, I suppose it depends. I mean, if they come to you, they come to you, but they just don't really. That's the right. thing. That's so, not your intent no, when you write. No, 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 no. Um, and I generally find that. Well, yeah, I, I just don't think I'm. I'm, I'm, an, I'm not a natural commercial animal, as in, mm-hmm. as in. Uh, probably the music as well, at the point. I didn't naturally write in a particularly commercial style. I don't think, see, if you look at Genesis songs, I mean, there haven't been many, many covered by other artists, either right. of their own style. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, I think, I think certainly where I'm, where I'm concerned, uh, whenever I try and be commercial, it comes out as being a bit bland and a bit forced. Sure. I remember Mike Rutherford saying that the, the, the best time to be commercial, best successful commercial, when you're not trying to be. If you try to be, mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's a bit fatal. But um, no, I'm certainly going. I'm certainly. Cause, I mean, the, the record company want me to do an album. Song, sure. So they keep pushing for an album. I think they'd like another side. You see. Right. Whereas I'm not sure I've got another sides in me to be honest. But. Um, I'm not sure I've got the confidence to do it, really. But certainly writing songs, I'm very keen on that. I mean, I have, I've got a stockpile of so many ideas, half-finished right. ideas. Right. So we'll see. I would think nowadays it's much more acceptable if you do an album that's kind of a potpourri of things, mm. whether it's some song, some instrumental mm. bits. Good. Because mm. it's you think about some of those older, whether it's Genesis albums or your albums, that were very much like half and half. Yeah, that would true. have yeah. like Geese yeah. and the Ghost yeah, as yeah, an yeah. example yes, of yes, that. Yes, you know? yes, yes. I, I'm, you're right. I'm trying to polarize it a little bit into <laughs> the song album or the right. metal album. So, yeah. Have you been able to, with your home studio that you have now, how often are you able to bring in other musicians here? The project, the project, really. I mean, I do I, I, quite a lot of library music. I collaborate with um, one other person. Okay. And we just sort of sit there and muck about the sounds. Or actually, quite a lot, a lot of people do this because you, you do it, you do it electronically. Mm-hmm. You know, you take stuff away and add. Um, mm-hmm. That's been a thing I often do is I kick off the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I, this is probably the thing with me. I'm quite good at getting an original idea, but then finishing it or completing it, I'm not very good. Is it because so, you want to keep adding to it, or is it just finding a way to end it? At I'm some not point? sure what to do. Right, okay. It can go in a thousand one directions. Right. So. so and also, some of these other guys are better at better on the sound front okay. than I am in terms of just polishing everything off. So, this, mm-hmm. these I've had a number of different collaborations, but that's on instrumental stuff, on songs, um, not a not a lot really. Mm-hmm. Um, the the crossover song we, I was talking about had a lyric written by a chap in Italy actually, because the, okay. the, the lyrics were Italian. Um, as far as it's quite a while now since I've actually done any kind of on the spot sort of like two two mm-hmm. guitar stuff. Right. I mean, Kike, um, I'd love to do some stuff with, but 
He just has and he's the Argentinian yeah, guitar player. Yeah, Barra Garcia. Right. Henry Watercress, it means, isn't it? Yes. Enrique Barra Garcia? Yes, Henry Watercress. Extremely silly name. <laughs> well, that's why one of the albums has salads by. Okay. Oh, okay. That's right. That, that was the joke. That was the pun. It's the, There's a lot of very. The inside jokes that uh, are, you know. Did you, you know realize, did you realize that on PP9, there's, there's two completely silly titles? That's the Dragonfly Dreams one, right? Yeah, because the Tears of Pablo Paraguas. Paraguas means umbrella, doesn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> okay. Paul Umbrella. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and Luigi Palter's Confession. Palter means avocado. Avocado, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's nonsense. <laughs> did you not realize that? I did not, because <laughs> even, even, even though I am. <laughs> and even though I am married to an Argentinian, I do not speak Spanish. <laughs> that is my great shame in life. So that's. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Pablo Paraguas doesn't. Um, and the other really silly one mm. is Sarah Blakely's Evening. Okay. Which album is that off? Eight, I think. Because I used to work with a Japanese guy, and he would get his R's and L's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so um, he's talking about Sarah Blakely Evening. It sounds like Sarah Blake, Sarah Blakely Evening. <laughs> so call this track yeah. Sarah. So I've often said that, I don't say to one friend who just come back from bringing a board, uh, uh, should we have a Sarah Blakely evening? She started asking her friends who Sarah Blakely was. I thought, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, oh, I have to explain everything <laughs> now to people. These witty, obtuse Englishmen. Yeah. You know? So, with, throughout your career, what music have you been listening to that's perhaps inspired you? Is there any composers or you know either even rock or pop artists out there that kind of have inspired you at different times or throughout your career oh gosh i mean so many really <laughs> but right from the beginning i think um um i mean i think i was influenced by obviously the the sort of beatles stones and all those groups early mm -hmm. on particularly the beatles where it came to songwriting mm -hmm. then when i started um moving into album terrain um Obviously, the prog bands, I mean, Call of the Crimson King, I think, had a huge mm, influence sure. on so many people. Right. Um, and working with Mike, Mike Charles was an absolute privilege. Right, right. Um, I suppose the, the major road to the master thing for me after leaving the group was the discovery of what we loosely call um, classical music. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, not all the composers, but there was so much I'd missed. Um, mm -hmm. And that was a sort of a just a kind of ongoing voyage of discovery. And I was terribly influenced. I mean, some of Tarka was very influenced by Holst. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, impossible not to be influenced by Debussy as well, really, mm -hmm. but for me. Um, sure. And many other composers. And then more, more latterly, I think the film composers, some okay. of the great film composers like Morricone, mm -hmm. um, George Fenton, well, there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, and I think that's probably for me the music to which I most most aspire in a way. Okay. Because um, I just think that a lot of the modern avant-garde classical music that one listens to is is terribly difficult. I mean, sonically, it really is hard. There's right. a few, few. I mean, there's a lot of very clever people, but it's just it's too remote. Um, and I, for me, a lot of the best classical music that's being written in inverted commas classical orchestra is in films okay and of course you'll put you 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 don't get any of this nonsense about a, a, a sort of um what do they call it 
not crossover. What do they call it when you combine? Oh, fu- fusion. It became it became terribly terribly on hit to do fusion, didn't it? Right. Um, but actually, of course, within a film, you can do that. One moment you can be writing a great film chase, which is very rock, uh, very car chase, which is very rocky, right. and then the next moment, a gloriously you know sumptuous romantic section. Right. Whereas if you start doing this fusion stuff, the press would always start having a go at you. Right. Um, so I always think that film music in that respect is very liberating. Right. Um, and some terrific guys, terrific guys writing. Right. At this stage in your career, do you do, do reviews make a difference at this point? I think anybody that tells you that they don't care about reviews <laughs> is a liar, to be honest. Um, right. I mean, a lot of people are told, well, aren't they sportsmen as well, and also just don't read the papers, you know, right. because the press are going to kind of murder you. I think I'm lucky now in that. My stuff is generally reviewed by, if you like, a sort of captive, sympathetic press. Mm-hmm. Everything is compartmentalized. Um, so I'm unlikely to get a real buffer. Okay. I might get people that, that don't think this reissue is particularly great or it's not, but they're not going to, mm-hmm. they're not going to uh, eviscerate it. Whereas, I mean, during the, the punk era, I mean, it was just, it was, you know, viciousness became a sort of art form, really. Right. And it was uh, these political assassinations. It didn't make any difference what the music was like. We didn't talk right. about the music all the time. It was both very juvenile and very, very unpleasant. So, yes, I mean, there was some, there was some, there was some horrible ones. And you do tend to remember the bad ones as well. Right. Um, I remember being given when I was in America doing the promo tour of the Geese the Ghost a, a piece of paper and it had two reviews on it one said the Geese the Ghost was a mellow rock classic and the other one said it's music to wash dishes to <laughs> so you think okay well, that's very different right. that you, you liked it a lot and you didn't like it at right, all sure. but I, I didn't get, tend to get subjected to that mm-hmm. disparity of reviews nowadays it's all, it tends to be the captive press and I, you know it's, the last few years it's been dream time really Right. Um, I mean that your magazine Goldmine in America, right. um, ten prog albums you should listen to had the geese and the ghost in it. I'm in between Call of the Crimson King and Crime of the Century, and I'm thinking I don't believe this. <laughs> so uh, that was very nice. Right. So, what do you hope listeners take away from your music? Gosh. Do you think about what the listeners take away from your music? Is that mm. is that even important to you at this stage, or is it more about your own creativity and saying? Some people will like it. Some people might not. It's mm, an interesting question. That like, I mean, you want people to like it. You want people to be moved by it. Um, going beyond that, um, it's 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 a bit difficult. You don't want to be presumptuous and, and think I want to change someone's life. Um, if you set out with too much preconception about what what you're trying to do, it's probably not a terribly good idea. Mm-hmm. I think you just hope it's good. People enjoy it. They are moved uh, um, and affected by it. Um, you know, occasionally I get comments from people, and it, it does make you feel very good when you realise that if someone's listened to something, maybe in a state of sort of either stress or whatever, and actually the music has kind of made them feel better. Right. And that is a really nice feeling. It's a really good feeling. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I think was not. It wasn't planned like this, but there is a, there's a similarity with the with the geese and the ghosts and slow dances, which is both end in a very peaceful, sort of almost zen way. Mm-hmm. And I was determined so that because it, I mean, it can be quite effective leaving 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 things hanging. And the end of 1984 is pretty mm-hmm. nasty. It's the reverse, <laughs> but then I suppose that goes along with the sort of semi-territory of the story. Right. Um, but I think the idea of just of, of 
taking someone on a musical journey and ending up in a place of peace. I mean, I don't like films with, 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 I'm a bit old fashioned with mm. nasty, unresolved endings. Sure. I much prefer a film that has a resolution to preferably a nice right. happy ending. They all lived happily ever after. <laughs> yeah, so. it doesn't have, doesn't have to be twee or, or whatever, but, right. um, um, I mean, the end of the planets is a case in point, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Which has that gorgeous thing when all the voices die up into the distance. Right. Um, and is, I love what that. is that, which is the last Neptune? Okay. And it has the the singers off stage singers. Okay. And you can always tell when you go to the concert, you get the really savvy people are already looking around to see where they are. <laughs> then there's the sort of medium savvies who get it straight away. Then the thickos who sort of start going <laughs> like this. Right. Well, we used to, we used to, when I've seen it at the Albert Hall, do you know the Albert Hall? I've never, you've been there, yeah, I've never been there. We used to joke that the, the Sopranos, seven or eight of them, were on a bus that slowly moves off down towards <laughs> Kensington. Right. Very nice. They fade off into the distance. Right. Yeah, yeah, I no. heard that the, the acoustics in the realm are not, no, not that right. good. No, they're not. Mm. They're, yes. I mean, they're, they're much better for sort of floaty music, but again, right. for definition, because yeah. the sound's going it's around. Well, we really appreciate you taking the pleasure. time My to uh, speak pleasure. with us. Any yeah. final words for our audience out there? Uh, well, besides buy your albums. Well, really, you know, really, <laughs> really, really, honestly, thanks for persevering because I know it has been very difficult to hold these albums at times and um, been very obscure and it's been tough. So um, just really thanks for staying with me. So that was the interview with Ann Phillips. Does anybody have any first impressions? Um, it was Ann Phillips. <laughs> it certainly was. And yeah. we were very happy to have him on the podcast. A, a very neat distillation of everything that sort of like, you know, Ann Phillips is about as a musician as, and as a person. Exactly. And we intentionally did not ask specifically about Genesis-related material. Because honestly, if, 
If you want to know about Ann Phillips' relationship with Genesis and his involvement in the first two, uh, two albums, there are plenty of places <laughs> to get that information. And we really thought that it was much more important and much more interesting exactly, yeah. to talk about his solo career and his career in library music and the reissues that are coming out. I thought that it was a lot of fun hearing about how he's a working musician and how he has carved out this career for himself with both the solo albums that he does and this career in library music that he has. I think it's interesting that uh, out of all of the members of of Genesis, um, people talk an awful lot about um, Steve Hackett being the sort of undiscovered talent or artist in the back catalogue of of Genesis' vast array of, of musical ventures. Personally, I find that uh, Ant Phillips's uh, solo career and his musical narrative, I think, is the most compelling of them all. And I think it's got to do with the fact that he has not been at any great pains in some ways to associate himself with the with the world of Genesis. He's just quietly and determinedly got on on with his own musical journey. I think for him, he's had his his perfect career in music yeah. because he's been able to do what he wants and make a living at it. And, you know, have a level of success and a level of fame that I think is comfortable for him. I think he, you know, he had, from, again, if you read about his history in Genesis, he had some stage fright issues that kind of insp- kind of caused his, him to decide to leave the band. And so I don't think he would have been a comfortable rock star. That wasn't the path that he wanted to be on. And so I think he found a way to make his own music and make it within his world and that's the main impression i got from listening to him is that he sounds very comfortable like yes. yeah he's doing the stuff he wants to do he's enjoying the compliments that as as you pointed out some people are just discovering his catalog and that makes him feel good that like he he's still able to make this impression on people with his music uh whether it's a regular album or private parts and pieces the uh that soundtrack work he's doing yeah. or you know the the incidental music and i think he's just in a good place now which is good to hear because i think some people might look back and say oh he's got to have a lifelong regret of leaving <laughs> the band and it's not like that at I all think that's, i think that's just i think that's just fan supposition right. to be yeah. honest with you no i was gonna say it, you know I, I got the sense too that he he seemed very um comfortable and very happy and he feels fulfilled with his as he should be um you know he's not a lot of flash at all he's mm-hmm. just like this solid foundation of music he's provided all of us and it's still relevant it's mm-hmm. it's very timeless i think of all the you think about the solo projects from the members of genesis you can go back to any aunt phillips album at any time maybe 1984 is an exception <laughs> but uh oh, that, I, have, I have things to say about nice all right all right <laughs> but i'm just saying you know the more acoustic and mm-hmm. his uh you know um like the private parts and pieces and the keys and the ghosts i mean it still sounds very good mm-hmm. and time it's timeless yes. and um it's wonderful so if if you're into that kind of music, definitely check out his catalog. Um, but the one thing that I just want to comment about him being comfortable, what really made me sit up and, and take notice with the interview was you were asking him, Mike, about um, you know working on another album of songs, yes. and he commented that well, you know, I don't feel very comfortable with songs. I feel like when I try to craft a, a song, it sounds kind of cheesy. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in in terms of maybe the pop structure or you know the verse chorus structure, he's very hesitant 
to to Find do it's that. Hard to finish things. Yeah, fi- like finish yeah. it and or feel satisfied right. with where it's going. Oh, he's honest. <laughs> and I he's and I'm man. like, you gotta be kidding me. You yeah. do you you do that very well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, fu- it's it's funny you should make mention about the fact that um, he has his fingers in so many different sort of mm-hmm. sonic pies, so yeah. to speak. Because I think one of the things that really hit home to me um, about Ant Phillips is that he has plied a similar albeit uh, a much more sort of under-the-radar career, to Brian Eno. Sure. And I think there's a lot of similarities by, by in the way that Ant Phillips uh, does his music in the same way that Brian Eno does. He, mm-hmm. he explores areas which genuinely interest him mm-hmm. and he absorbs that into, into, the, into the great whole of his writing. It's interesting that I think that uh, in a lot of ways he would actually make quite a, a powerful and perceptive music producer for a band that would like to do songs because I think he would take them out of themselves into areas which maybe they might not necessarily have have thought that they would they themselves would be comfortable that's interesting yeah it's it's actually it would be that'd be a good follow-up question for him if we were ever to do another interview about if he had ever thought about or had opportunities to produce other acts uh, because I think that's another skill set that I think he would probably have, because he produces so much of his own music, that to bring that into other people, that could be an interesting, an interesting perspective for them to have. In, in terms of uh, your meeting with him, uh, I think it's very cool. I, I don't know many people who own a harpsichord. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so you, you actually got to play on Ant's harpsichord? I did not. He played it himself, uh, and he played kind of the opening chords of Geese and the Ghost on it that I was like, oh... Yeah, I was trying to keep calm and carry on and be composed, but uh, I, I did. I I yeah, it was, was it was to. great. I I have to admit, I did play a chord on his grand piano, and one of his guitars he had hanging up, and a acoustic one. I kind of strummed it, and I was like, "Oh, that's an alternate tuning." <laughs> like I, I had no idea what it was, and he said, "Oh yeah, that's whatever." Um, it's the Pentecostal scale. Yes, isn't it? exactly. So I mean, he's he was just a very giving person of his time yes. and. You walked through his studio and his his house, and he had this. He had the original artwork for Geese on the Ghost that I think had not been remounted on the walls. He's like, "Oh, there it is!" And there's an electric guitar hanging out there with it. I'm just like, "Yeah, this is a guy who lives music." But when we were chatting beforehand and afterwards, we talked about Monty Python and the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper reissue. Yeah, while he was making tea and yeah. chatting. Yeah. He's a real comedy fan, isn't yes. he? Oh, and he, he was very thrilled when we when we brought up the Spinal Tap piece to it that he was aware of, but had never seen the picture of it. So I pulled up a Tom screenshot of that image, and it's on the interview. He was he was thrilled about that. He says, "Show me that. I want to see that." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow. So so, sweet. so again, we recommend to everybody to yeah. seek out his solo career. If, as he said, the decent the ghost is probably the best starting point out there as a as a full album i think if you want to go a little deeper right away there's a compilation that um that esoteric just put out called harvest of the heart that is four discs of his music and again it's a great career overview uh, but if you're looking for one album that's kind of if you want to know what's this guy about get decent the ghost it has phil on it it has mike rutherford on it i was really happy that he was happy that he that we can get the music easier nowadays, both in the United States and and elsewhere. Right. Because I know Stacy told the story about um, in the past about her getting the music in the past. Yeah, well, not getting it. Not getting it. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I mean, 
you know, it was, I think, back when I was, you know, getting into Genesis and all the solo material, um, I think it was Aunt Phillips was the hardest find for me, um, with Steve Hackett actually a, a close second. Um, in ter- well, there was not his entire catalog I couldn't find, but Aunt Phillips, that was... That was like that was that was my treasure hunt. Every record store I go to, anywhere I was visiting, it was always my mission. If I can find an Aunt Phillips record, or if you um, found it, it was on CD at least. It was when I would find it, it would be yeah. thirty dollars for a CD. So because yeah, they were all imports. Yep, imports from England or elsewhere. When was this? I'd say in the early to mid nineties. And I was living in Boston at the time, and there were good record stores that I would go to, and I remember I could picture the label. I might even still have some of the CDs with the price tag on them, <laughs> where it's $30. And at that point, I was making less than 20000 a year living in Boston, and it's like, hmm, Aunt Phillips or food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes, Aunt, yeah, Aunt Phillips would win sometimes, yeah. but there are still some albums of his that I have not found uh, or not listened to, and actually the, re- the reissue that will come out this summer of Slow Dazzle in uh, summer of 2017, if you're listening to this in the future, which is any time after today, <laughs> is... is um, Welcome, fellow time Exactly. So uh, it's... Um, like I'm really looking forward to hearing this new, old Aunt Phillips album. Right. Because it'll be... I might have heard some clips on compilation albums, but nothing nothing complete and i'm guessing we're going to be sort of visiting at least one or two albums of his career on a, on another yeah. episode i think it will i'm sure we'll do decent the ghost hopefully coming up soon maybe explore some of the other ones you know whether it's you know 1984 or, or sides or sides or some of his more uh, song based albums in the past i don't know if we need to do every private parts and pieces album Lots of them. My hope is that uh, if if um, if you're interested in, in Ant Phillips's music, now's your opportunity because yeah. he has never been more available yes. to the general public than he is right now. Yes. Well, I have to admit that I can't use the excuse anymore of his material being unavailable. So it's, <laughs> it's on me, uh, but I am very excited to actually now explore his catalog because it's one of those... It's rare that you remember the first time that you yeah. listen to an album because sure. you know, this was 20, 30 years ago that we started yeah. discovering this material. But now I know, like, here I am, I'm about to listen to The Geese and the Ghost for the first time, and I, I'm very excited about it. Yeah. So You'll have very your good. own special way of listening uh, to these. Exactly. <laughs> very good. Give that well. man the clap he so richly uh. deserves. <laughs> Slow clap. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, growing up, I was gonna say that the, you know, Tom, you, you haven't explored yet Ant's music, but uh, me growing up, growing up in Argentina, I might have gone in maybe Giz and the Ghost in Buenos Aires in hmm. a specialized, let's say, record store, not the mainstream. And again, they were expensive. So when I moved to the UK in the 2000s, my mission, as Stacey, you know, said in her case, was every time I would go to a record store or record fair or any record type of event, I would just look for Anthony Phillips yeah. material yeah. and you know get my collection together because yeah. I love his music and I kind of play guitar a little bit. I love acoustic yes. guitar, so there you go. I think the best compliment I can all I can give Ant Phillips is that my if I'm in a record shop and I see an Ant Phillips 
uh, album, my hand will linger on it and I will look at that album. Because there are so many albums that you can buy now. Your choices are sort of yeah. like, you know, a legion. And if you find a, an old Ant Phillips uh, record, that's definitely something worth picking up and And, and, uh, and, and caressing. And caressing, yeah. <laughs> Gently. And, and remembering if you bought it in the past or not. Like, yeah. Do I have this one? I'm not sure. No, well, in the case uh, of Tom, he doesn't have that problem. That's right. Yeah. You can always just pass it along to Tom. Yeah. So. We'll give you a special prize. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so with that we will wrap this episode up we again thank you for listening be sure to listen to Aunt Phillips albums and so this is Mike signing off this is Ellie this is Simon this is Stacy this is Tom and this is Simon <laughs> and this is Stacy and Tom and Mike Ellie <laughs> and Aunt's out there somewhere so wish Aunt a good evening here comes Dora the dog, in case you missed her too. And we thank Ant and Esoteric Records for doing everything that they do. Yeah. So we'll see you next time on Tabletop Genesis. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. Uh-huh.